15 seconds, McGruber! Okay, we can do this! Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, Tulane Law Professor, co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport, and the man who tackled Daniel Jones on the 20-yard line. This is a special tell-me-everything-I-need-to-know-about-a-topic-in-44-minutes-or-less episode of the pod. Today, I'm joined by legendary sports lawyer Jeff Mishkin to help explain the ongoing legal battle between the NCAA and college athletes over the NCAA's amateurism model and limits on college athlete compensation. Jeff has been the chief outside counsel for the NBA for many years and has represented every major professional sports league in the country. He has litigated every significant case involving the NBA over the last four decades, and he got his sports law start over 30 years ago, working alongside a young lawyer named David Stern. Jeff is currently representing the NCAA in the Alston v. NCAA case, which the NCAA has recently appealed to the Supreme Court. He and I will cover everything you need to know in 44 minutes or less. Here we go. Welcome, Jeff Mishkin. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Gabe. Happy to be with you. To give the listeners a little bit of an idea of your background and experience, you were the chief legal officer for the NBA for a number of years. You've also represented the PGA, the NFL, the NHL, Major League Baseball Advanced Media, on and on and on, and the NCAA. Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up being involved in this area of the law? Sure. Um, Mostly by accident. I started with the Proskauer Law Firm in 1973. Uh, I had no particular background in sports, had never given it any thought as something I could connect with a legal career. I went to the Proskauer Firm because I had been told uh, that it was a good litigating firm and I wanted to litigate. One of the first people I met by happenstance at Proskauer was David Stern. Um, I I had no idea, I think he had no idea that he would eventually go on to be commissioner of the NBA for 30 years. But we met in 1973, David was representing the NBA, was a small client at Proskauer. And David said, would you like to work on an NBA case? And I said, sure. He probably could have asked me to work on anything, and I would have said, sure. (laughs) And so I began working on NBA Matters, Gabe, in 1973, the fall of 1973. And here we are in the fall of 2020, and I have uh, been representing the NBA all that time. David went inside to the NBA in 1978. He became commissioner in 1984. I continued doing work outside for the NBA. And then eventually in 1992, I went inside to the NBA for about seven years. To give people some idea of the types of cases you were working on, and you were involved in the every landmark NBA case, I think you were involved in in some capacity, whether internally or externally. When you first started working on the NBA cases back in the 70s, what were the types of matters you were handling? The initial matters were antitrust cases. One was Levin against the NBA. There were two businessmen who had wanted to buy the Boston Celtics. They were turned down by the league. They brought an antitrust suit. That was the very first case I worked on with David. The next case was, again, an antitrust case. And this was a a large case brought by the players, the Robertson against the NBA action, which challenged uh, the NBA draft, the NBA, what was then called the compensation rule, the option clause. And I spent several years on that case with David. 
And after that, there were just really many, many, many different NBA matters that I worked on until I went inside to the NBA. You mentioned antitrust a couple of times. And for the listeners, your expertise centers on antitrust, labor, IP, and and others. And I think for most people, it's intuitive how being an antitrust expert helps you work on the next antitrust case, and certainly how working on one MBA case would help you work on another MBA case. But can you talk a little bit about how working on an NBA case might help you work on whether it's an NFL matter or a PGA matter or, or the NCAA matters. And the way I think about it, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, is that there may be some exceptions. They're, they're joint ventures and they create a unique product and they're a blend of cooperation and, and competition that in large part is popular more so, I guess you could make this argument on the pro level, but is popular in large part because of the uncertainty of outcome and that so many rules are in place to try to achieve that uncertainty of outcome. So whether it's the NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball, there are similar underlying issues. But can you talk from your perspective of of how it has helped you just to be a better sports lawyer to have been involved in so many of these cases? Well, uh, antitrust law affects sports in a particular way, and you certainly hinted at it. If you view the teams in the league as competitors, and and certainly they are competitors on the field or on the court or on the ice, um, they also clearly compete for players and, and, and coaches. So if you view them as competitors, and given that the antitrust laws are designed to prevent competitors from failing to compete with each other. They're supposed to compete and not tell each other how to run their businesses. But a sports league can't operate that way. The the teams have to cooperate to create the product and and market that product. Uh, If you think about it, almost everything a sports league does, if you view the teams as competitors, is going to raise an antitrust problem. Anything from setting a limit on um, the number of games you're going to play. Most competitors don't tell their competitors how much product to put into the market or a roster limitation or a college draft. And those issues are are common across uh, most sports. Representing the NBA certainly made it easier for me to understand and, and pick up on the antitrust issues that affected the other sports as well. Let's go to your work with the NCAA and the cert petition that was filed earlier this month in the Alston v. NCAA case. And I, I want to get in the, into the petition and the arguments. But before we do that, I just want to provide the listeners with a little bit of context. It's the section that's first in the cert petition. But if you could discuss a bit the concept of amateurism and why it matters from an antitrust perspective. Sure. Let's start with the, the fundamental purpose of the NCAA. I think that's a good place to start. And that is to, as the NCAA's fundamental documents say, its purpose is to maintain uh, intercollegiate athletics as an integral part of you know the educational program and to maintain the college athlete as an integral part of the student body and in that way preserve uh, a, a clear line of demarcation between professional sports and collegiate sports that's the idea to have a different kind of, of product and that all of the rules are really based on that fundamental notion that the NCAA is trying to ensure that intercollegiate athletics are part of the educational program and that athletic competitions that it is sponsoring and promoting are distinct and different from professional sports. 
And, and the rules all follow from that, uh, including that you must be a student. The idea is to have real students play against real students. And that, as the Supreme Court said back in 1984 in the Board of Regents case, student ath- athletes must not be paid. It's, not, it, it's just definitional that that's how you distinguish between collegiate athletes and professional athletes. Collegiate athletes do not get paid to play their sport. Can you explain for people who, who might not understand why that line of demarcation, why that differentiation matters from an antitrust perspective, why that ends up being, the in a lot of ways, a central argument in the antitrust cases? Sure. The idea of the antitrust laws is, again, that competitors uh, are supposed to compete with each other. And if they are not competing, if they're cooperating, as in a joint venture where they're creating a new product, like in this case, intercollegiate sports, there has to be a pro-competitive justification for their cooperation or somewhat anti-competitive conduct. And the pro-competitive justification for creating this distinction is that it it increases consumer choice. It gives consumers, uh, you know, different products to choose from. And that was the basis of the Supreme Court's analysis in Board of Regents when they talked about the eligibility rules. That case had to do more with television broadcast, but there was a segment of that of that case devoted to eligibility rules. And it said that because the NCAA is creating a separate and distinct and different product from professional sports, it is creating, enabling consumers to have a choice. And that is pro-competitive. And, and that's the defense to an antitrust case, that you're acting in a pro-competitive way. The Board of Regents case obviously becomes the foundational case in this area and is cited in every NCAA antitrust case since. And as I, I think you'll probably talk about a little bit later on, the that language is cited and whether it's the must not be paid or the, the deference that the courts should give to the NCAA and the revered tradition of amateurism. Before we get into the specific application of that in Alston and in O'Bannon, the argument that comes up Almost every time that Board of Regents is cited in in a brief by the NCAA is that, well, that was a TV case and these are eligibility rule cases and that it's dicta. What has been the NCAA's general response to the argument that Board of Regents is dicta? Well, there's a very good argument that it's not dicta, but dicta or not, the Supreme Court said it, and they said it very clearly, and they said it at at some length. And the reason they said it, even though that case was about the television plan and the limitation on how many games schools could show, the Supreme Court really took great pains to say, but now let's distinguish that kind of antitrust problem from what is not an antitrust problem. And that is your eligibility rules, because that creates the product that creates the separate and distinct product. Your limitations on the number of broadcasts that schools can do does not define your product. That is not necessary to maintain a distinction between professional and and collegiate sports. So I don't know, Gabe, whether it is properly dicta, called dicta or not, lawyers can argue about that forever. I don't think it matters. I think what matters is the Supreme Court said it very clearly in that case and why they said it, which was to distinguish that analysis from the analysis they had made on the uh, television part of the case. And I, the way I teach that portion of it, whether it's dicta or not, Dicta. Clearly, multiple circuits have adopted that reasoning. 
And it's become central to their definition of amateurism and the antitrust analysis. But to the extent that Board of Regents was a, used a less restrictive alternative analysis or, or the argument that the TV restriction was not reasonably necessary to maintain amateurism, it was because the eligibility rules and amateurism rules were sufficient. And so to me, that's, that's part of the holding. The reason that the television restrictions weren't necessary is because the other ones were. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Fast forwarding, as you mentioned, there have been multiple courts, multiple circuits that have upheld the amateurism distinction and have essentially held, as, as we will talk about in more detail, that the NCAA has a right to implement these rules to, as you said, uh, increase consumer demand, consumer choice, create this product that otherwise wouldn't exist. And then we get the O'Bannon case. And the O'Bannon case, as it's been described um, by the Ninth Circuit, at least the district court, was the, was the first court, federal court to rule that an NCAA amateurism rule violated antitrust law. And given that Alston was heard by the same district court judge and is obviously also then decided by the Ninth Circuit. Can you give a little bit of background and context on the O'Bannon decision? Because I think some of the infirmities that the NCAA has argued from the O'Bannon case, they argue again in, in the Alston case. We do. Let me go back to the facts of, of O'Bannon and we'll, we'll come back to the legal analysis. Uh, that case began, I think, in 2009. Um, Electronic Arts, a video game manufacturer, had had produced and put out a game, a college basketball game, and it used avatars to represent players, but they did look a lot like players, and they used some of the same jersey numbers. And Ed O'Bannon, former great player at UCLA, brought a lawsuit claiming that he had not given permission for the use of what he said was his likeness. And perhaps more importantly, he wasn't paid. He wasn't compensated for um, that use. And so he brought a lawsuit that had two parts to it. One was a right of publicity. You're not allowed to use my name, image, and likeness without my consent. That part got settled. But the second part was an antitrust claim, the rules that prevented him from being compensated for the use of his name, image, and likeness violated the antitrust laws. As you said, O'Bannon was the first case ever to conclude that NCAA eligibility rules were an antitrust violation. More than that, it was the first case ever to really subject the NCAA to a whole full-blown rule of reason, case lasting years with discovery and, and, and major trial, rather than, as other circuits have said, once you identify um, the rule at issue as one that is um, part of creating this distinction between collegiate sports and professional sports, then it's just lawful. Whether you say lawful as a matter of law or simply clearly would satisfy the rule of reason because it is pro-competitive, that was a major break from other cases that the NCAA now had to justify in a rule of reason case and with evidence that amateurism was important to consumer demand. And in O'Bannon, Uh, The district court um, found that at least one of the NCAA's rules was stricter than necessary to accomplish that, to to serve consumer demand. And that was at the time that O'Bannon got started. The NCAA's rules on scholarships, uh, student athletes are always permitted to get scholarships, uh, but the scholarships were limited. 
Uh, they were called grants and aid, and they, they were limited to uh, tuition, room and board, books, fees. They didn't pay for the full cost of attendance. And that was part of the argument that by not allowing student athletes to receive athletic scholarships up to the full cost of attendance, the NCAA was being stricter than necessary. There was a, a less restrictive alternative than that, and that was giving full cost of attendance scholarships. And so the district court in O'Bannon said, you must do that. The antitrust laws require you to go up to a full cost of attendance. And A, that was really not much of a problem by the time the district court said it, because the NCAA on its own in 2015 had permitted, uh, was now permitting cost of attendance scholarships. The second part of of, uh, the O'Bannon decision was that the district court said, and you don't, even beyond cost of attendance, you can give up to, and she picked the number, $5,000 a year to each uh, student for compensation for their name, image, and likeness. You don't have to pay it to them while they're in school. It can be deferred. It can be put in trust. But that's what she said. The NCA had to permit $5,000 a year for each student um, for name, image, and likeness compensation. When that case got to the uh, Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit upheld the first part that said, yep, you have to go up to the uh, full cost of attendance. The antitrust laws do require that, but they do not require any payments above cost of attendance. So that's how O'Bannon came out. The Ninth Circuit was pretty explicit in O'Bannon about why providing that $5,000 was not a less restrictive alternative for the the existing compensation rules or, or limits on compensation. And that and then essentially one penny over education-related expenses would destroy amateurism. Uh, and that's exactly how, what, what, how amateurism is defined, is the fact that they're not paid more than their educational expenses. Um, so that that's obviously ends up being a, a, a win for the NCAA. The cost of attendance was a was a loss, but as you say, it, it didn't it was didn't really matter because the NCAA was already giving cost or allowing cost of attendance. But the NCAA still filed a cert petition for the Supreme Court in O'Bannon. What was the rationale for appealing that case that the NCAA in, in large part won? Well, I, I think uh, it, it was mostly the ability to operate the NCAA is, is hugely impaired if you have to justify under the rule of reason every time you make a change in your eligibility rules. And I wouldn't really phrase it as not one penny more than COA. I mean, students and student athletes do get more than COA on occasion. They can have Pell Grants. There are things, the, the Student Assistance Fund, if they, they need emergency money for, to go home for a funeral, or they need a winter coat that they can't afford. There are payments that can be made to student athletes beyond that. But I think that was principally it gave that. In O'Bannon, um, both the in terms of having to justify our rules on eligibility, and every time someone challenges them in a major rule of reason case, did not give us the ample latitude that the Supreme Court said we we had to have, and also the idea that you could pay money above uh, a scholarship. You could pay money not not for an educational expense, not to reimburse an educational expense, but actually compensate an athlete for their athletic performance. That seemed to us wholly inconsistent with the idea of maintaining a distinction between uh, collegiate sports and professional sports. So then you go from O'Bannon and then immediately into Alston. And if you could just give a little bit of background on the Alston case and the difference between Alston, at least factually, and O'Bannon, 
and then we can talk about the legal arguments and then where we are now. Sure. Alston got started in 2014. There were a number of cases. It was Alston filed in the uh, Northern District of California before the same judge that decided O'Bannon. It was the Jenkins case that was filed in New Jersey. There were a bunch of other companion cases. These were filed. O'Bannon had yet to be tried. But these cases were not about name, image, and likeness. They were not about uh, one particular set of facts. This was just a frontal assault on all of the NCAA's rules that we're trying to maintain this distinction between collegiate and professional sports. We're now under attack in Austin. And, and that was the basic antitrust claim that, in effect, consumers don't care about whether or not the college athletes get paid. Therefore, you don't have a justification for not paying them. And there was a lot of, of other arguments thrown in there that had little to do with the antitrust laws, but we can save that and, uh, right. because there obviously are public policy issues here that are very important and controversial, but they're not antitrust questions. So let's focus for right now on the antitrust arguments in Alston. And it was just that your competitors, you can't agree not to pay athletes for their athletic services, and consumers don't care. You mentioned the overlap in terms of the timing, and then O'Bannon has decided, and then it's decided on appeal. And now you're faced with having to litigate Alston. Can you walk through a little bit about the NCAA's initial arguments about the impact the, the O'Bannon decision had on the Alston case? Sure. The Ninth Circuit in O'Bannon said expressly, that while the antitrust laws require the NCAA to permit scholarships or payments up to the cost of attendance, the antitrust laws do not require more. That's direct quote from the Ninth Circuit. Alston was all about getting more than cost of attendance. And so the initial arguments had to do with this case has already been decided by the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, as a matter of either stare decisis or collateral estoppel, or you know, this this issue is is decided, and it shouldn't be litigated again. That did not succeed. The district judge held in uh, in Alston that uh, this was a different case, or at least it was a different time period, and things had changed. I mean, nothing had changed in terms of the rules were not made any more restrictive. In fact, they'd, they'd been liberalized between O'Bannon and and Alston, but it didn't matter. There had been changes. In the NCAA's eligibility rules, and the district court said that creates a new case. The rule of reason cases are fact specific. I've got new facts. I've got new lawyers. I've got a new record. O'Bannon does not prevent me from deciding this case. That was the initial argument. And the, and so that O'Bannon decision, as you talked about, the the idea that amateurism rules would be subject to a, a full blown rule of reason and are fact specific was sort of a double whammy for the NCAA because you had that. And then Judge Wilkin using that to say, that's why I should hear this case, even though we have O'Bannon on the books. That, that's right. And it, it, you also mentioned the the rule changes and, and some of the rule changes were more favorable to college athletes. And it, it brings up this interesting issue, which I know is, is part of the the argument from the NCAA, but that by liberalizing the the rules, by making them more permissive, by providing more economic rights for college athletes, the plaintiffs turned around and said, well, that changes the facts and that makes what they have done an antitrust violation. Can you discuss that point a little bit, that it was a sort of a, you're damned, or you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't from an antitrust perspective and trying to provide additional athlete rights? 
Yes, it, it's pretty uh, ironic. The greater the rights you give, the guiltier you are under the antitrust laws, because again, as you said, the plaintiff's argument was, well, if, if you can now give the right, you didn't need it before. And if you didn't need it before, it must have been an antitrust violation. So now I'm entitled to damages for what you've now changed, which... I mean, the logical result of that is that the NCAA can't make any rule changes or else it's going to get sued and be hoisted on the argument that by now liberalizing the rules, they have confessed judgment that they didn't need them before. It seemed to us a, a, a very difficult uh, position to be in. Ultimately, the, the, where Judge Wilkin came out on Alston was an interesting place, actually, because she began by agreeing with us that maintaining a distinction between collegiate sports and professional sports is pro-competitive and lawful, but where she kind well, of- and she had to do that, right? I mean, at that point she was, the Ninth Circuit was clear on amateurism as a pro-competitive benefit. Yes, but where she, so she took it that far, but where she kind of went off the rails after that was to say, but the real distinction between collegiate sports and professional sports is not that professional athletes get paid and college athletes don't. The real distinction is that professional athletes are paid unlimited amounts unrelated to education. That was her phrase. And because the NCAA does have rules that that prevent payments for things that might somebody might argue is related to education, she said all those rules are no good. Now, we obviously agreed with her that our rules permitted payment for all educational expenses. If you had a legitimate educational expense, yes, that that is, you know, something that college athletes are able to get entitled to get. It doesn't, in our view, harm the distinction between collegiate athletes and professional athletes. But she said, no, this the way to look at this is professional athletes get unlimited amounts unrelated to education. And so NCAA, you are committing an antitrust violation to the extent that you prohibit payments that might be said to be related to education. So you've got the the two categories. One would be payments related to education or benefits related to education. And then the ones unrelated to education. And as you said, she said, if it's unrelated to education, you can put limits on it. Correct. Uh, I think that distinction was fairly clear to everyone, but we'll talk about why the NCAA has a problem with part of that distinction. The other issue is that third bucket that she created of the, the cash academic awards or incentives. Can you explain that category? And, and then we'll talk about the issues the NCAA has practically with yeah. that outcome and then legally. Yes, there were really two things that she said where cash could be paid to athletes beyond their scholarships. One was these academic uh, awards or graduation awards. The second was paid internships that would be available post-eligibility, but they could be used as a basis for recruiting and that student athletes could be paid any amount, unlimited amounts for um, internships. So those were the two things that I think gave us the most problem in terms of undermining the distinction between collegiate athletes and professional athletes. This uh, academic awards, she said, that's related to education. But of course, if they were unlimited, I guess that could, says Judge Wilkin, undermine the distinction between collegiate and professional sports. So there has to be a limit on those. Now, the limit she came up with was 
something unrelated to academic awards. She looked at the permissible athletic participation awards that the NCAA allows. We do. There's a whole section of the rules about if you win a bowl game or you win the conference championship or you otherwise succeed in your season, you can go to various events and get gifts, several hundred dollars. But those are called the athletic uh, participation awards. And Judge Wilkins said- Part of the asterisk in the not one penny more. So it's one, one yeah, of those exceptions. Well, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that that's always been permitted. And uh, I think it has its its genesis in trophies and the winning little league team would get a trophy and the trophy sort of morphed into a gift card and the gift card became a gift suite. It has moved. But the idea is these athletic participation awards, she said, uh, you know, if you can tolerate those, then you can tolerate your rules should be able to tolerate academic achievement awards at the same level. She found that $5,600 was the most anybody had been eligible to receive in these athletic participation awards. And so she set the limit on academic progress or graduation awards at that same um, $5,600 level. Either coincidentally or ironically or something was very similar to the level she set it at in Oban. Uh, it was, yeah, it was just about identical to what she had said, and it would been reversed on in O'Bannon. Right. From the NCAA's perspective, again, we'll t- let's talk about the practical implications of it, of, of what it will mean. Um, well, the injunction is in effect, but I know there's some debate about what the injunction means, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But what would the injunction allow that wasn't allowed before the injunction was granted? Principally, those two areas that I talked about, the paid internships and the, the academic progress awards, almost everything else that's in that injunction that we're, quote, required to provide, to the extent they are educational expenses, you know, computers and musical instruments, that is already covered. The NCAA does not have any issue with allowing schools to, to pay for all reasonable educational expenses. And her injunction seemed to cover a lot of that. And and that was not terribly troubling. But where it was troubling was that the internships, the paid internships and and the academic progress awards, limited only by the athletic achievement awards, which are for a totally different purpose, that seemed to us to fundamentally undermine the idea of, of keeping collegiate athletes separate from professional athletes. And is the the so the paid internship? I mean, given that the the current rules allow for current student athletes to have outside employment as long as that's at the rate commensurate with the right. the market. Yep. Um, if that were the limitation on the internships, if the, if there were, it had to be for work actually performed at a reasonable rate. Does that minimize or, or, or eliminate the the concerns from the NCAA? Uh, It would have been better. But again, her standard was that the only things we can limit or the only we can we can prevent are, you know, unlimited amounts unrelated to education. So if anybody can be creative enough that something is related to education, even beyond what she says specifically in her injunction, that would arguably meet her standard and and, and the NCAA could not prevent it. Right. 
Got it. So the concern is now less about, which I think it had popped up right when Judge Wilkins' opinion came out from some, was that this would open the door for athletic departments to buy a baby grand piano for an athlete who is in a music class. That That's not the the focus that's... Well, was the in the argument to the Ninth Circuit, the... Uh, baby grand or the Stradivarius argument, we have to provide musical instruments. So maybe we'll be, you know, called upon or some school will decide it's a good idea to provide musical instruments to everybody and they can sell them. And that would be an obvious dodge around the the non-payment rules. The Ninth Circuit sort of cleared that up and said, no, she didn't mean that, you know, that for transporting yourself to class, you could you could have a Mercedes. What it meant was that reasonable educational expenses should be reimbursed. And, and with that gloss, that was certainly helpful because it brought it right in line with what the NCA already does. If, if it is a reasonable educational expense and not something excessive and really not truly related to a necessary expense to go to school, reimburse expenses. And the Ninth Circuit said, that's fine. You don't have to make these excessive payments for things that are luxuries and not really necessary. So we've got the practical implications. Now, talk about why the NCAA, and this is in the cert petition for anyone who wants to to read it, but we have (laughs) Jeff here to to summarize it in a couple of minutes. So you don't have to read the entire thing. Why the NCAA is arguing that as a matter of law, the decision is wrong. Again, there's some overlap with the O'Bannon argument, but there's some additional argument as well. Yeah, there is. I mean, it begins with the idea that this standard pulled really out of thin air, that the distinction between the right distinction between collegiate and professional sports is unlimited payments unrelated to education. That is inconsistent with Board of Regents. It's inconsistent with lots of other circuits. And it's inconsistent with the the, the common sense understanding that the difference between professional athletes and collegiate athletes, apart from their being students, is professional athletes get paid to play. Student athletes do not get paid to play. And so that's the first problem we have with it. It is inconsistent with uh, the Supreme Court's own precedent, as well as other circuits. And of course, it undermines the very distinction that that Judge Wilkin and the Ninth Circuit said they were agreeing with and that we could preserve. Um, the way they this has been decided, it is not going to preserve that distinction. It's going to undermine it. So that's uh, an important part of the cert petition. Another important part of it is that this injunction puts the district court in a position to micromanage almost everything that happens in the NCAA. Any rule change or the definition of what's related to education itself, we're not permitted to define. That's the court's definition. So if we think something is or isn't, related to education, we're going to have to go back to the court to find out whether it is or not. And other people can argue that it is. And we're going to be not only micromanaged by a district court, and that is not in an antitrust case, the function of the court is not to micromanage the business, is to say what is or is not consistent with the antitrust law. So we are not only going to be micromanaged by her, but we're going to be in probably endless litigation for several reasons. One is the amorphousness of this idea of related to education. I I just think that's going to keep us constantly in front of the the district court. And also the basic 
decision in O'Bannon and carried through in Alston that departed from the other circuits. And that is that we have to justify every eligibility rule on a full rule of reason trial. That's impossible. And that is, again, contrary to what the Supreme Court said in Board of Regents, where we're supposed to have ample latitude to superintend college sports. You cannot do it if every single change to your eligibility rules is going to trigger an antitrust suit or at least an appearance before Judge Wilkin under her injunction. And that's what's going to happen. It's happened already. Additional cases have been brought. We have a a proceeding under the injunction. And and for all of those really important reasons, the cert petition um, is just very, very important to the NCAA. And on that note, I know it's a, it's a slightly different part of this argument and the micromanaging and the second guessing and, and having essentially a district court have jurisdiction, ongoing jurisdiction over the definition of amateurism and, and education related benefits. There's already a dispute about the what the injunction entails and, and what that, you know, we were talking about the $5,600 number, but the plaintiffs would argue that it's higher than that. Can you discuss a little bit about that dispute and where we are there? Yeah, sure. Judge Wilkin, in her decision and in the Ninth Circuit as well, focused on the $5,600 number. That's the number she came up with, what she had understood from the record um, at trial. We had no idea she was going to go there. So this was not discussed (laughs) this way at the trial at all. But somewhere in the trial record, there was an indication that some student athlete, one or two outstanding athletes, had been eligible for up to $5,600 in these gifts or athletic participation awards. She said the limit should be. But in her injunction, she didn't actually put in a number. She just said whatever the maximum would be that anybody is eligible for, which is, I mean, no one's ever done it. And the participation awards are not set up in a way where you could simply add them up. There'd have to be an awful lot of assumptions. The injunction, but the injunction left it without a number, I think principally because she said, if we expressly raise the athletic participation numbers that you can, these gifts can be worth, then we have to go up to that number for the academic progress awards. I think that's why she left it blank. But having left it not blank, but having not put in a number, we're, we're in recruiting season. Schools want to know how much they can offer in academic progress awards. And the players, the, the plaintiffs here say, oh, we think it's it's much more. We think it's 15,000. If you make this assumption and make that assumption and add this to that. So we're in the middle of, of this debate uh, in front of Judge Wilkin now as to whether or not the right number is 56 or, or 15,000 or who knows. It's a little bit of apples and oranges, and so it's hard. But it's just a good example, Gabe, of this micromanagement and this uh, the kind of issue that now has to be litigated in an antitrust court where it shouldn't be litigated. It's interesting because it does go to the heart of, again, whether people agree or disagree with the NCAA's arguments, but it goes to the heart of your argument that these are decisions that should be left to one, the NCAA, and two more broadly, sports organizations, which is sort of where we started this conversation. Right. There's a need for them to create rules. And as a general matter, we don't want courts or the government interfering with these rules. Yes. And I think it's that's exactly right. And particularly, we're dealing with a joint venture. It, by definition, is a it's an enterprise created by competitors 
to create a product that not the one of them couldn't, that they could only create it together. In creating that, that product together, these competitors are going to be making lots of decisions about pricing or how to market their joint product. If every one of those decisions, be it the NCAA or any joint venture, has to go back to court to be sure that this is okay with the court, it's just an impossible way to operate. And, and once again, it is just exactly the opposite of what the Supreme Court said or how the NCAA should operate in superintending college sports. It needs ample latitude exactly for these reasons. And one last question, and I, I ask this one for the people listening and also for my own benefit, but given you've had an incredibly successful and accomplished career as a lawyer, who or what helped you most in becoming a good lawyer? <laughs> mentors are invaluable. No one can succeed without mentors. My principal mentor was David Stern. So we are taking this back to the very beginning of the conversation. When I met David, I was 24. David was 30, but he seemed a lot older to me at the time. David was a unique individual. He was a really fabulous lawyer. Turned out he was an even better commissioner than a lawyer. But David used to say, if anybody would ask him, that he taught me everything I know. <laughs> and frankly, that's not too far <laughs> from the truth. I, th- I may have learned a few things on my own or from other people, but I, I do attribute a, a lot of success I've had to lessons that I learned from David Stern. And then last question, and I, and I, I want to note for everybody that, uh, as we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes, this case is still active. So Jeff is... Uh, limited in what he can say. And I I just appreciate you so much coming on to talk about this and to clarify these issues and and to simplify it for everybody. And so I, I will ask this question with the understanding that there is ongoing litigation and proceedings here. And so I'm going to talk about people who are not involved in the current case, right? That's my long preface for this question. Who is the most impressive lawyer you have litigated against? <laughs> Gabe, I think I'm going to pass. I have, I have litigated <laughs> against very, very impressive lawyers. Uh, I have had the great, great good fortune of arguing against many of the, the very, very best. There are there are a number of them, and uh, but I think for this purpose, they're going to remain nameless. Fair, fair. So I, w- I won't ask you the other follow-up, but who is the worst person you litigated? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jeff. This is great. Uh, you're very welcome, Gabe. Good, uh, good to be with you. I, I appreciate the time and good luck with everything and be well. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you all for listening to this episode of The Pod, which was brought to you by Impact Econ Research. Doesn't it seem like these days all everyone is talking about is big data, enterprise analytics, economic modeling, and predictive forecasts. Wait, what? What about COVID, the election, and of course, sports law? But if I did want to talk about evidence-driven decision-making in this complex time, I'd call Impact Econ Research. And you can too at impacteconresearch.com. And of course, the pod is also brought to you by RitVest. RitVest. If you don't know what it is by now, I'm not going to tell you. Ritvest. And I will see you next time. Between the lines.